Welcome to our podcast of Roots and Hoots. I'm your host, Gordon Spence of the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Our guest today is Albert Beck. Albert is Métis. He enjoys volunteering, sewing, beating, writing, working on his university degree, spending time with his husband, Dr. J. Craig Phillips, and his family. Albert has spent much of his life as a human rights defender, fighting the inequities that affect the rights of all Indigenous peoples in Canada. Albert now spends his professional and personal time advancing Métis Nation two-spiritness, Métis child welfare and health promotion initiatives at the national and international level. Uh, today's podcast is going to be focused on the 60s scoop. And uh, Albert was uh, a survivor or is a survivor of that time period. Uh, before uh, I ask Albert to, to talk about his experiences, I'm going to read uh, a bit from an article that was published in June 2016 by uh, Nigan Witam, James Sinclair, Sharon Daynard. The Sixer Scoop refers to the large-scale removal of or scooping, I quote, uh, unquote, of Indigenous children from their homes, communities, and families of birth through the 1960s, and their subsequent adoption into predominantly non-Indigenous middle-class families across the United States and Canada. This experience left many adoptees with a lost sense of a cultural identity. The physical and emotional separation from their birth families continues to affect adult adoptees and Indigenous communities to this day, the 60s group was not an isolated event propelled by inferior Indigenous parenting, but rather an extension of paternalistic policies in Canada that sought the assimilation of Indigenous cultures and communities. The process began in 1951 when amendments to the Indian Act gave the provinces jurisdiction over Indigenous child welfare where none existed. From the 1960s to the 1980s, provincial governments considered the removal of Indigenous children the fastest and easiest way of addressing Indigenous child welfare issues. In many cases, the child welfare system did not expect or require its social workers to have specific knowledge about or training in Indigenous child welfare. They also did not have to seek the consent of communities to scoop newborn and young children from their parents and placed them into non-Indigenous homes. It was only until the Child, Family and Community Service Act in 19, 1980 that social workers were required to notify and councils of a child's removal from the community. And my guest today is Albert Beck. Um, he was one of the, uh, he is one of the survivors from that period. Albert, maybe uh, you can just talk a little bit about how this began for you and, uh, and uh, where, where it took you. Maybe start with your family and where you come from. Thanks. Thanks, Gordon. Uh, I just want to first thank the Legacy of Hope for doing this important uh, work. I think uh, sharing knowledge on different uh, topics is really important, and I'm just really grateful to be here. So, Tanshe, um, like you said, my name is Albert Beck, and I'm, this, I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation. And uh, my roots come from the historic Red River Settlement, uh, which is uh, in Winnipeg. I'm the second oldest of five children, and I was born in St. Rose de Lac. Um, I come from a small Métis settlement called Crane River. It's about 300 kilometers west, west, northwest of Winnipeg. And it's on the shores of Lake Manitoba. 
I'm a citizen, or pardon me, a member of the Manitoba Media Federation, and I uh, live and work in Ottawa and been there for a number of years. I'm a senior policy analyst for the Métis National Council, and uh, my key files are the 60 Scoop and the Métis Veterans File. Um, for the 60 Scoop, I'm the advisor to the Métis National Council's minister responsible for 60 Scoop, Vice President David Chartrand, who also happens to be the president of the Manitoba Métis Federation, again, my home province, and uh, a, a really good leader. So sort of my, my story begins uh, at being apprehended at birth in St. Rose de Lac. Um, I came from a Métis family that lived in poverty, but had, was strong in family connections. But through the um, interactions in the hospital, the social workers were, became involved um, in, in, in the apprehension process. And so I lost my traditional language and culture as a Métis citizen. Um, had I grown up in my family, I would have spoken Soto, which is my mother's tongue. I grew up in a Ukrainian family and I was taught the Ukrainian culture. Lived in isolation and in a state of confusion throughout most of my child and youth and um, adolescent life and early, early uh, childhood. I became addicted to uh, alcohol. I was using alcohol to sort of numb all the pain and, and anguish that I suffered. I went through a number of hospital stays as a result of trying to commit suicide and just simply because I was very, very lost. I came out as a two-spirited person during the AIDS epidemic and um, so along with the uh, loss of my family and dealing with the traumas around that, I was utilizing alcohol and drugs and also ended up with um, HIV. So I ended up coming into the Indigenous community through an AIDS, an Aboriginal AIDS service organization. And through that process, um, I began to learn First Nations culture. I didn't really learn much about Métis, um, but um, the avenue, that road led me on my way home. And I repatriated back with my, my birth family in uh, 1997. So that has been uh, sort of a big, uh, it was a big learning curve for me, um, dealing with a health condition, dealing with addictions and dealing with uh, trauma. And it took a number of years to, to heal from those afflictions that were not my own, that many survivors actually take on themselves. And so I, I had to learn uh, my culture and I began to do that. I began working at the Métis National Council. I actually moved from Winnipeg to, I was moving from moving around a lot and I moved to Vancouver and ended up with an opportunity in Ottawa and stayed there. And I ended up working for the Métis National Council. I started there in 1999. So just a couple of years after I came home, I worked for the national office. And there I learned about my culture through, mainly through the Métis women, the political leaders and the elders. Um, and I learned a lot about where I came from and uh, around the cultural and language. And that also brought me home uh, a lot through my travels back and forth. 
And so I began to spend a lot of time with my birth family. And that's been, that, that was a difficult uh, process um, to reintegrate back into the family. And so um, it took a number of, it's, it's still um, in progress. Uh, I, I've been actually been in, and since COVID, I've been in, in Winnipeg for the last three months. We, I'd lost my brother um, through suicide in February. And so I sort of been home and it's really, you know, sort of, solidified or brought us closer together as a family and so I feel um, things have been been a bit tough but I've been sort of the repatriation process has been a, an ongoing process it's really something that continues to evolve on a daily basis and so that sort of has led me to the work that I do on the 60 scoop. What led to you being scooped up? How did that well, happen? Well, I, there was um, some information. I did an information request for, like, uh, for most provinces, those that have been adopted. Foster care seems to be a problem accessing records, but for those that were adopted, um, the province of Manitoba uh, passed legislation to allow those adoptees to access their 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 records. And the records really are just the birth records, not necessarily everything that's contained or the, the dossier that has all the um, notes and, and information about the about your stay within the child welfare system. And uh, you have to actually do that through, um, you have to write to CFS, Child Family Services, and ask specific questions. And um, so I was able to get a little bit of a, an overview. And basically their rationale for apprehension was neglect. Upon repatriation with my family, they actually they even said that my mother had actually signed adoption rec, adoption papers to to put me up for adoption. But based on based on our communications with each other, our, our talking with one another, um, I learned that um, they had gone to the courts to try to to get me and actually have a younger brother that was also scooped and um, tried to get that process and get us home. But the courts made it so difficult for our family. You, they were young and they were required to have a house and, and my dad was supposed to have a job. And so that really just didn't play out very well. And so I think my mom, I remember my mom telling me that she was one of the, one of the last, I think one of the last meetings was uh, she had brought my baby clothes. Uh, she was expecting actually baby clothes and she was expecting to bring us home and that never really happened. And that's when, that's when everything was finalized. But the, the papers had mentioned that my mom had signed, uh, my birth mother had signed um, adoption to release me, to give me up for adoption. She never did, and I've been trying to get access to those uh, records so I could see because I would, we would know um, the handwriting, whoever signed it. We would, we we could have that analyzed. Um, my mother and I are both uh, left-handed, so it would we would be able to tell if someone right-handed, because most people are right-handed. We would be able to tell who, she, if she signed those papers or not. You know, there's all these. The, there's still a lot of questions around why. In fact, we haven't really ever received a. a a proper why my mother has never received uh, a response on why uh, these children were taken away. We know from some of the research that's being done and some anecdotal uh, information that's being shared uh, that this was part of the colonial constructs uh, uh, and processes that the Crown was involved in in relation to uh, accessing our um, Indigenous lands. And by doing that, they uh, went after the children. And so, you know, the Crown or the Canadian government or the state 
committed gender-based violence against Indigenous women to thousands of Indigenous women. And, and of course, this is all part of the, um, the colonization and accessing our, our natural resources and lands. So, you know, we can look at it from sort of a broader prospect, but I think it was part of the, the plan, uh, overall plan, I believe, and it was to assimilate Indigenous children uh, into mainstream society. And so as a 60 scoop survivor, they succeeded. So they could have made up any kind of excuse, really. I mean, it, you know, it was actually a systematic approach to, to colonize Native children. Well, I mean, it was, a, it was something that they created. Um, they created the reserves. Um, and right beside the reserves were Métis settlements. They created um, the Indian Act. They created different legislation and, and, and schools that uh, were aimed at assimilating uh, Indigenous people. It was all part of a master plan um, to assimilate people or Indigenous people. And so these, this was something that I believe was um, always intended and, and always was being manufactured to, to, you know, basically remove our indigeneity from, uh, from, who, from who we are and our rights. Was it, was it, uh, was it just you or did, did you just say you said you had a brother uh, who recently passed away? Was he with you? Did he get uh, scooped as well? No. So the, the, this is the funny thing. It's, well, not funny. I shouldn't say funny. But I think this is one of the things that I always, uh, we question is that my mother had a son. His name was Conrad Beck. That was my older brother who who uh, left us in February. And and then there was myself and my younger brother, Michael. And then I have actually um, um, a sister and two sisters. And they they didn't take uh, Conrad, but they took um, me and Michael, and they were actually on their way to taking uh, our my sister. Uh, and so um, my grandparents stepped in and actually had to literally go into the hospital and steal my sister and get her out of the hospital and, and to the home. And actually the child, well, the social worker actually came to the house and my grandfather basically said, you need to leave. You've already taken enough from us. We can take care of our own. And and so those children, my, my, my older brother and my sister stayed uh, within the family while uh, Myself and my other brother uh, were scooped, and so there we're, we come from the same family. But one of my, my younger brothers not really connected to our family. And then there's me that's connected, and so our family is very fragmented. Even though we are together, it's it's a bit fragmented. Uh, the loss of my brother just created another like fragment, another loss. So yeah, it's been been difficult, and these repatriation processes you know when we came came home there was these huge um information gap and experience gaps that we will never ever get when they talk about my grandfather or my granny or um our my uncles and 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 great great uncles and all those those members i we we i don't have a place to put it in fact if i want to see what my family structure looks like i have to look at a genealogy to sort of figure things out but i don't we don't have anything to connect connect them to and um um, and be able to sort of put a face to those those names of those individuals. So I think um, there is this huge gap and loss of of not only culture and language, but we've lost 
our kinship uh, knowledge of who, where we, where we come from. So it's just very, sometimes it's very artificial. I live in Manitoba. I've lived in Manitoba for my upbringing. I was about, we both lived probably, I think Michael probably lived like an hour away from our community. And I lived about eight or nine hours. I grew up in Northern Manitoba. And so um, we were always close to our home, but we were never home. And so coming home, it's been, it still feels that way in some ways. Where did uh, where did you grow up? Like what town? Um, I grew up in the Paw, Manitoba. Actually, we moved we moved a couple of places, but more specifically, we stayed put in the Paw. I grew up. I I started in Cranberry Portage, and my adopted parents, um, my my adopted father worked in construction, and then worked ended up working for the Department of Highways in Manitoba. So we stayed in the Paw for until I graduated, and then I I moved moved to the city. Talk a little bit about your adopted parents. How was that? How long did you live with them for? Well, um, the my relationship with my adopted parents, our adopted parents, has been estranged for over thirty years. Um, the you know sort of throughout the you know at my younger ages, I was actually told I was adopted at about I think it was in grade I was in kindergarten or grade one I think so I was told at a very young age and I that instilled in me um, a um, it shattered my world but I understood at a very young age that I didn't belong and I needed to to, to go find my family. How did it feel when you first heard that? Well, I it would, I felt very shattered. It um, it shattered my world as a little child. Um, I had to deal with a big thing. Um, what what I thought was the truth was not the truth, and so the relationship, the parental relationship, was severed. And so I basically lived in a space in a home where I felt. Um, disconnected and so it caused a lot of a lot of uh, it was traumatic and so without having any supports or any kind of counseling it set forth a trajectory where our relationship was so toxic that I actually started to run away at around 16 and I I've been revering a lot of I'm reading a lot of 60 scoop survivor stories and this is not unusual for the family uh the adopted family unit to begin to break down. It can be at any age, but um, usually around uh, a time when we start to realize who we are or what's going on in our early teens, we start to run away. And this is something that we see happening in the child welfare system where we have our young girls running away. Or you see all these amber lights going, or amber alerts going on and we see children running. It's because these relationships have broken down because the, our, we know that we don't belong there and we need to get home. And so the relationship was so toxic that I actually, I severed ties with them and I moved out very, I, I, I went out on my own very early. And of course, with the trauma, the drinking and the alcohol, I was, you know, I was basically surviving. I lived out on the streets and for, I think, a summer uh, when, I, when I first moved to Winnipeg and it was just really, really rough, not really getting a lot of support uh, from anybody. And so, yeah, so I haven't, I haven't spoken to them in over 30 years. Um, I do keep in contact with all the other, other, other family because now I sort of have come to a conclusion or understanding of why I was the way I was. But it's really difficult to sort of explain it to them now because they're in their close to their 80s now. It's just something I don't feel is really necessary.
You don't talk to them anymore? No, no, we don't talk. Have you been back to uh, Green River? Yes, actually, uh, it's funny. Um, I went back, uh, my husband and I uh, took a trip there for the first time uh, last Easter, actually. It'll be about just a little little over a year when we went home and that to me was a very emotional trip I felt like I was felt like I was meeting my my birth family for the first time and just going home um, was a very emotional was very emotional for me just to be where my family and ancestors lived and and walked and it was a very like very spiritual very connecting, um, and I understood some of the reasons why I am sort of the way I am. I love the water. I love camping. I love being outdoors, and the community of Crane River is very, very small. Um, it's right beside uh, Crane River First Nations community, so they're very linked together. I have uh, lots of family that live in Ebb and Flow First Nations, and so our the families are very connected, but just going there and being on the lake uh, close to the well. I went on the on the shores of um, of the lake, and it was just it was just beautiful. And I just felt very connected for the very first time in terms of just feeling like I was home, and um, just having the having that that first time. And I I was home. Remember, I came home in 1997. It took me a long time to finally get to wearing my traditional. Uh, homestead and so it was very very uh, emotional and very um and very satisfying and um i met some of my i met some of my family members that are still living there and some cousins and i went to the graveyard so i i met most of my family um in the graveyard so my aunts and uncles and my grannies and grandpas are all buried in the cemetery in Crane River. So I was able to pay my respects. And, and I was lucky enough to have a cousin, my cousin there, and she was telling me stories of all these, all these uh, people. So it was a family member. So it was really, it was really nice. It must have been a tremendous relief for you, a sense of relief after going there and seeing all your relatives and finally coming to terms with what happened to you and coming home in a sense. Yeah, it was a sense of happiness, but also a sense of sadness, because still, you know, when you think about it, the loss of these losses, I, you know, I, I knew I had lost some loss, but I didn't realize how much I really did lose. And when we, when we think about, you know, all the stuff that's going on, the litigation, the, the compensation programs and, and whatever limited services that are going to be available through the First Nations and Inuit um, compensation package will not compare to the loss that survivors have gone through. With the Métis Nation, we're still in, uh, you know, last year I think there was five class uh, actions uh, leveled against the federal government. Um, and so that is in the courts in I think an appeal for carriage, but the Métis National Council, where I'm at, has been working at negotiating a settlement agreement without going into the courts. But because of what's going on now, things are sort of um, not up in the air. But the Métis Nation is still trying to do some stuff, but um, it's been limited in its ability to um, sit down with the federal government. So. It's been frustrating uh, as a survivor and trying to provide some supports and uh, some healing supports for um, Métis Nation citizens. You know, we we did consultations with um, over, I think it was over 
200 Métis 60 scoop survivors from across the Métis homeland, so Ontario to British Columbia. And we heard what they wanted and what they needed. And so we worked really hard at, you know, utilizing what we heard. We created a, a report, uh, what we heard report, and we're using that as a um, as the platform negotiations. And so these are, it's frustrating because we can't really do a lot right now because things are not moving along, but the pain and suffering still happens. And now that we're in the COVID-19 era uh, where people are, are forced to stay home, this has probably added more stress and anxiety to um, all survivors. In the, uh, in the same article that I'm referring to, research suggests upwards of more than 20,000 kids were taken from their homes, and these include First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children. And many were also sent abroad, some as far away as New Zealand. And in 1981, alone, 45 to 55% of children were adopted by American families. Now, with that's a lot of, that's that's a tremendous amount of kids that were removed from their families. I'm just wondering out loud, uh, I wonder how many of those are still out there trying to find some sort of repatriation? Well, I I wouldn't even try to, 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 to figure that out. And the reason why I say that is I think the number is an underestimation. And so I think there's a lot more. Um, I have met a uh, Métis survivor from New Zealand, um, and I've met uh, some from that were taken to England. And I've met many from the United States. In fact, we, we've been able to sort of, I've been able to keep in contact with many of them. But a lot of, lot of uh, why I'm saying that's unestimated or if they're ever going to make it home is because some of them don't even know that they were even adopted. If they are adopted and they find out that they're adopted, some can't even get home because their identity has been changed and their nationality has been changed. Or they are so traumatized from the experience that they never made it. And there's, I believe that there are thousands of 60 scoop um, survivors that have uh, passed away because of the trauma being removed from their environment and put into a, a foreign environment. So yeah, there, I think there's a lot. And I, I say that, I say that with great sadness because mm -hmm. there's so much potential, so much human potential uh, lost our artists and our program people and our our lawyers and our our warriors and our fighters all this these this has been lost and you know part of the the re rationale around taking indigenous children and putting them into non-indigenous families was to help them so they could succeed and that never ever ever mounted to a hill of beans. So we were actually put in more danger. So I think the number is underestimated and I believe there's a many of them that are never gonna make it home. Oh, that's amazing. 20,000 plus kids. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of lives. Yeah, it is. That's a lot of mothers who, have, who, who walked into a hospital and gave birth and walked out without their child. Put that into perspective. Forced to give up their children, mm -hmm. their child. I have a question about your family name. I think you know it's Morriso. Did you want to go by Morriso at one time? Is that your original family name or was it Beck? 
Well, actually, um, so this is the identity crisis that many of us have gone through. In fact, when I was thinking about this, um, I had a Ukrainian last name and first and middle and last name. And then when I came home, I changed it. I kept my first name and I changed my middle name to my birth name and I took on my uh, parents' last name. So my father is a more so and my dad is a back. But um, I decided... Um, it was probably in 2018, had a national 60 scoop, 18 60 scoop symposium that I was going to go back to the name that was given to me at birth. And so um, my name on my original birth certificate is um, Albert Beck. So I began the process of doing the paperwork to make those changes to account and bring myself back to um, where and who I was. I think in the early stages, I had changed my name in, in haste because I was just so excited to come be home and be the person that I was supposed to be, but over the number of years and through different experiences and, and so forth. Um, and trying to go back to some to the beginning or to the to where things should have been and return things back to the way they are my goal uh, was to basically take on the birth name and it's my next step that i will be doing is working towards finding a mechanism through legal process to basically divorce from my adoption so yeah. that everything that all the because my name is still uh my birth parents aren't on my my birth certificate, it's still the adopted parents. So I need to have that all removed and brought back to it, to the original uh, birth certificate with the names of my family on it. You're also in our, uh, one of our exhibits called uh, Bigiwen, meaning coming home, truth telling from the 60s school. And that term was coined by Patrick Johnson, author of the 1983 report, Native Children and the Child Welfare System. Which, and then that exhibit is with the Legacy Hope Foundation, and it travels across Canada. And if people are interested in Bigiwen, it's an exhibit of the, of the 60 Scoop. But if people are interested, they can, they can contact the Legacy of Hope Foundation for more information on that. I want to thank Albert for uh, joining us today. Albert, uh, we're, almost, uh, we're almost to the end of our uh, our podcast here is there like contact information that if people wanted to contact you about the 60 scoop uh, do you have, do you have a number or a, a site yes um those uh, citizens of the metis nation who want to contact me on the work that we're doing at the metis national council we have a website it's uh, so that's www.metis60scoop.ca and um, my contact information is uh, on the contact section of the um, of the website and there is updates um, and information and resources for metis citizens that live within the jurisdiction of the metis nation's homeland and and they can call me if they uh, want information or they need some some supports or be reconnected um, with the uh, regional offices so they can provide some support. Excellent. Last part of our podcast of Roots and Hoots is the Hoots part. And uh, Hoots meaning something funny, <laughs> a joke or something like that. We like to ask our guests to tell a joke or tell a funny story, if you will. Uh, so do you have something funny, a funny story to tell us, Albert, or a joke? 
I like to tell jokes and um, sometimes they're, they're okay. And sometimes they're, 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 they're not okay, but I like chicken jokes. So, so here, here it is. Um, So why did the chicken go, go to the seance? Why? To get to the other side. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. That's funny. funny. Mm. That'll pass. Yeah. Yeah, I've been talking to Albert Beck from the Métis Nation, and uh, Albert, thank you very much. He's been talking about uh, Sixty Scoop and uh, himself as a survivor and what he went through and the difficulties and the trauma he's gone through. Uh, I'm Gordon Spence, uh, the host for Indigenous Roots and Hoots, brought to you by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Thank you very much again, Albert, for being with us here today. Thank you. Thank you much. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.